We're in 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, I am so excited about this morning. Uh, we are entering into, uh, if you have to do like, you know, uh, the most popular chapters of Kings, this would probably be the one. 1 Kings 18, this is the big one. <laughs> this is the big chapter. This is the one in that famous story that you likely remember where Elijah has his great and, and awesome contest with the prophets of Baal and the really exciting things and the fire coming down from heaven and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not today's sermon. <laughs> it's interesting how this chapter starts. And actually, that was what was striking me as I was reading this particular chapter, is just how uh, sort of unassuming and sort of curious the way that this chapter begins as it describes a couple of characters, introduces them to us, brings Elijah back into the fold. And then also, uh, especially when you compare how sort of, for lack of a better word, uninteresting this portion of the chapter is when you compare it to the really dramatic contest with uh, Elijah and the miracles and all those sorts of things. It's interesting to think about that, especially you can come away from reading the first 16 or so verses and just think, why is this here? What's What's the purpose? Uh, why? What's the historian trying to show us? What is actually perhaps a better question? What is God trying to show us by including this particular story, this particular anecdote about Obadiah, this apparently faithful man who was in the house of Ahab? What's, what's all this doing here? And I think it's exactly passages like this which give us one of the best looks, I think, at what it means to be faithful. Actually, I think that's the theme of these first 18 verses. It's what does faith look like? If you remember, uh, what we've been doing so far as we've been going through Kings is, is we've kind of been examining it. And a theme hopefully has been sort of popping out, over, especially over the last several weeks. A theme that I think the historian is just pounding and pounding and pounding into folks. And I think that theme is this, that God's word is the only word that matters. There's no other word in uh, the earth that has authority the way that God's word does. He has authority over everything. And so far we've seen that over and over again, almost on repeat. We've been shown how those who live, quote, according to the word of the Lord, there are things that happen through them and with them and for them. And those that reject that word, those that abandon it, those that uh, do everything they can against it, that's when judgment comes. That's when hardship arises. And I think we've seen mostly, uh, up until this point, 18 chapters now so far, all of the sort of negative views of what happens when kings and nations reject God's word. Think about, uh, I'm not going to rehash all the past 14 sermons, but just think about Solomon, the man who was given so much promise, the son of the great King David, who himself rejected the wisdom that he was gifted by God, and it led to the disruption of Israel. And then ever since that moment, ever since that very moment when Israel was d- uh, divided, it's been one war, one conflict, one scandal after another. God's word has been reduced to regrettably nothing. And we are seeing in this particular history all of the horrible consequences of that decision. But despite what I think is most interesting to me 
And what we've gotten to in a couple other places, what is most fascinating to me is despite all of the, of the uh, sort of anticipation of, of evil to crush out the light, despite of however vicious a king is, he can never fully quench the light of God's word. It cannot happen. God always preserves his word. And more than that, he preserves a remnant of his faithful that he protects, that he sovereignly safeguards, that he oversees. Yes, they might endure hardship. They might endure some very grievous moments, but he preserves his own. He watches over his faithful and he preserves them. And I think about that. Imagine this moment. We're in chapter 18 and the worship of Baal has been brought to the forefront. It's very loud. It's it's very lewd. And yet despite all of that, despite the echo of that liturgy in the streets of Israel, you know what's happening. God is not giving up on his people. (laughs) He's still working. Which... If it doesn't give you a view of God's patience, I don't know what does. But what does it look like then for an Israelite faithful to live as this movement of evil is increasingly encroaching on all that you've grown up to know about this Yahweh? As all these things are being changed, as all of these uh, uh, new political movements are moving on your nation, and now there's an entirely new worship service, there's entirely new policies, there's no way that you can handle living in this situation, this predicament. How do you live faithfully in crisis? (laughs) What do we do? What do the faithful do? What do the, quote, remnant do? What does Yahweh's remnant do in the midst of the engrossing iniquity and idolatry that's so rampant in the culture? Well, I think that's what brings us to our text. Because actually, I think these first 18 verses give us four very striking portraits of what it looks like to live faithfully. That is, to live according to the word of the Lord. And if you haven't already guessed, I think that the day and age in which Elijah was preaching is not that much different than ours. <laughs> There's not that much that's changed. Sin is still sin and God is still gracious. So let's look at these quickly. These four portraits of those who are uh, living faithfully in a world that's diametrically opposed to everything that has to do with Yahweh. So let's look at firstly, verses 1 and 2. We see, I think, here a lesson about following. A lesson about following. Notice again what the historian says. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Just to recap, get back into where Elijah has been. He's been in Zarephath for, as it says here, many days. <laughs> He's been there for a while. God called him after he announced this uh, horrible famine, this sermon of judgment, we could say, on Ahab and Israel. As he's standing there in the courts of Samaria and he says, famine is coming. And then he leaves. God calls him out of this public ministry and calls them into the wilderness where he sojourns there. Remember, he was fed by ravens, and that was really miraculous. And then he's called later to uh, seek nourishment from a widow woman of Zarephath, where he's been. The miracle of the barrel of meal, and as we looked at last week, the miracle of her son being resurrected. So he's there in the wilderness learning about the authority of the word of the Lord, I would say. And the historian now tells us that it's been three years... Three years since that initial sermon. (laughs) 
That initial proclamation of judgment in Ahab's face. And just step back and think. Three years of famine. Three years of farmlands that all across Israel being reduced to just wastelands. Three years of just waiting on God to work. Waiting on God to move. God has called me to do something. To proclaim something. And yet now it's been three years since that initial calling. Since that initial moment. I don't know about you, but I would be getting restless if I was Elijah. I would be getting a little bit antsy. A little bit impatient. That's something I can definitely resonate with. With those who are in the scriptures when they get impatient. (laughs) Waiting on God to move. And also think about all of those who were faithful still in Israel. It's been three years. And the faithful and unfaithful alike who are there in the land of promise. All of them have been, been brought to their breaking point and probably beyond it now. Three years of just clinging and hoping that something will give. Something's got to give here. This is exactly when the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. I think this is so interesting to me. That God always works in desperate times. Have you noticed that? He works with desperate people who are in desperate situations. And they're brought to the proverbial ends of their ropes. And that's when he moves. That's when he moves forward and moves on his own. And actually increases the movement of his word in this world. It's in desperation. And here he calls his prophet out of the wilderness. Again, and going again. Look, at he says, go, show thyself unto Ahab. Again, pause. This is no small thing. This isn't just something I think we can gloss over. We should pause and think about Elijah's situation. Elijah has not just been called to the wilderness by God. He's been called there because he's been on the run from Jezebel. Jezebel, the the wicked king or queen, the, the wife of Ahab, has been sort of making it her life goal, her mission in life, to just eradicate all of Israel of any prophets of Yahweh. Look at verse 4. We'll get there in a moment. But it says, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. She's been seeking out all of these prophets of Yahweh and seeking out that they would be, uh, that they would bring their heads on a platter, so to speak. That's, that's her mission. <laughs> And yet here, where does God call Elijah? Back to the very place where he's being hunted. (laughs) Back to the very place and before, to stand before the very people who would want nothing more for his head to be brought to them on a platter. (laughs) I wonder how Elijah acted when he heard this word. I'm sure there must have been a moment of relief. Finally God is speaking. God is moving. God is, use, is going to use me again. And then what do you know? He calls him to something that I'm sure he would rather. He, he wasn't jumping and clicking his heels at. Go and appear before Ahab. Go and stand in the presence of the one who wants nothing more than to slay you. To kill you. Was Elijah elated? Was he overjoyed? Was he delighted at this call? I think sometimes, and maybe this is just me, maybe this is, you don't struggle with this. But sometimes I I have to consciously think about the fact that this man Elijah was a human. (laughs) 
And he wasn't just a ministerial robot who was programmed to do the will of God. And that when he sends new coordinates for his next waypoint, he just follows and he goes because that's what he's called to do. He's a man who struggled with doubt and fear and restlessness and, and, and confidence. He struggled with how to move forward in the call of God, even when it's to a place where you'd rather not go. He's being called back to the place where everyone wants his life. They want to extinguish his life, I should say. (laughs) Humanly speaking, this is a summons that doesn't sound like good news. This sounds like something that I would rather avoid. It's almost like Jonah. He's given a calling that he would rather not engage in. Except in this case, Elijah is actually obedient, whereas Jonah wasn't. (laughs) Remember, this is a human being, a man, a man of faith, yes. And a man, I have no doubt, uh, was curious, <laughs> curiously praying, God, are you sure about this? <laughs> this didn't trigger excitement. God was calling him into something unsettling. Circumstances which weren't, quote, ideal. This wasn't the the way it was supposed to be. And now you're calling me back into a place that has gone so far downhill. And yes, God says, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Go where you're unwanted. Go where you are wanted, dead or alive, and probably the latter. (laughs) Go into the eye of this iniquitous storm. Go into the eye of sin and there proclaim my truth. That's what God is telling Elijah. And he does just that. Go show thyself, verse 1, unto Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. And Elijah went to show himself unto Ahab. And there was a sore famine in Samaria. It was sore. It was grievous. It was vexing all of the land. (laughs) And he goes to appear, make himself visible is what that word means. He stands, and that's what his mission is to be, to stand before Ahab. How does he do this? How does he go where he doesn't necessarily want to go if he had his druthers? If he could choose, this is probably not the place he would go. But he goes and shows himself before Ahab precisely because the word of the Lord was with him. Notice God's promise is awesome. God says, go show thyself unto Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. Once again. God is giving his prophet, his messenger, the assurance that you're not going alone. You're going with all of the omnipotence of Yahweh in your mouth. You're not going it in your own resolve and your own eloquence and your own intellect. Don't worry about the things that you will say because I will give you the words to say. Don't worry about how you're going to look or how you're going to act. Go because I am calling you to and the word of the Lord is with you. Not just the word of the Lord. It's the omnipotent sovereign word of the God who spoke and things were created. And I can speak now and everything will go back to flourishing. This is the word that accompanies Elijah. That's where his resolve lied. That's where his power resided. That's where his courage was found. Not in himself. But in this word that accompanied him. 
That came straight from the mouth of Yahweh who said, I have the sovereignty to turn back this famine. Because his word is stronger. His word is truer. His word is better. If you've not gotten the point yet, nothing can stand up against the word of the Lord. And he's made that very evident so far. (laughs) So here... Elijah is accompanied. He follows God's calling back into heartache, back into harrowing situations, precisely because he had the omnipotence of Yahweh in him and with him. What better comfort could there have been for this prophet, for this man of God? None. And what better comfort is there for you and for me? None. You have in front of you, or on your phones, however you're looking at scriptures this morning, you have the words of Yahweh in front of you. Have you ever stopped to think about how significant that is, how amazing that is, how miraculous it is, how a gift of grace that you have God's words right in the palms of your hands. You enter harrowing situations, not because you are strong and courageous, not because you are superhuman disciples. You enter it because the omnipotent word of Yahweh is in your soul, is in your heart, is in your mind and in your mouth. You can go into difficult situations. You can enter a world that doesn't want anything to do with you and enter it confidently, not because of yourself, but because of the words that you speak. These are the only words that are able to push back rampant idolatry and iniquity. It's the words that you have right in front of you. I just think about how our world isn't much different than Elijah's, like I said earlier. <laughs> Just all of the, of the, just the headlong and headstrong plunge into idolatry and iniquity and those old tired sins. And the same sort of uh, lingo is, is pushed out that that old religion of Yahweh, that's just a, a tired, antiquated system and we don't need anything to do with that. It's not much different now. And yet, this is exactly God's calling for you and I. To champion and preach something as fresh and good that the world sees as something that's old and tired and past due. He calls us to follow him. Knowing that omnipotence is accompanying us. His rod and his staff are never away from us. And sometimes God calls us precisely into unexpected and unwanted territory. Precisely because he is with us. And even better, he is in us through his Holy Spirit. What does faith look like in a crisis? It looks like following God into unwanted territory. (laughs) Because he and his word is with us. His omnipotent word. Secondly, look at verses 3 and 4. A lesson about following, but also a lesson about sacrificing. Look at what the historian tells us about. Elijah's coming back to Ahab. He's on his way. And almost as if you were watching a movie. Meanwhile, back in Samaria, Ahab is calling Obadiah, who was the governor of his house. 
This, of course, is not the Obadiah that you might know from the minor prophets. But even still, this Obadiah holds the position of governor, as it says, or steward over Ahab's house. Much like you can imagine Joseph in Potiphar's house. He's a man, Obadiah is, of authority, of sway, of position, of status. He has the king's ear. (laughs) He is able to uh, speak with the king almost on whim. And yet, in this glorious parenthetical that the historian adds into this text, and he says, now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. (laughs) What a surprise. Actually, it should shock you. It should come as a twist, as a surprise in the narrative. Almost as surprising as ravens being sovereignly commanded to feed the prophet by the brook brook, uh, Cherith is just as surprising as it is to find someone faithful in Ahab's court. (laughs) It's a very surprising twist. Because Ahab has done everything so far to reject anything that has to do with the Lord. This is probably the last place we would ever expect to find someone serving faithfully. And the historian, though, I think knows that. And so that's why he doubles down and he makes sure no one sort of questions Obadiah's fidelity by giving us a sampling of what his faith stirred him to do. Notice verse 3 again. Now Ahab called Obadiah, which was the governor of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And how do we know this? Because he says, for it was so that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. As we said earlier, she was, Jezebel was, making it her prerogative to cut off the prophets of the Lord. I get in my mind's eye, I don't know how historically accurate this is, but the Queen of Hearts from Alice in Wonderland, who keeps yelling and chanting, off with her heads, remember that? Maybe don't. Maybe don't watch Disney movies, but that's okay. Um, But she says that, I promise, if you watch it. And I get that picture of Jezebel as sort of running around, sort of like a a red-faced and all mad, because all the prophets are are preaching uh, the faith of Yahweh, and she's screaming off with her heads, trying to get them out of the way, get them out of their lives. She was hunting them down. These are appalling days. Just stay in that for a moment. Again, sometimes we we rush through scriptures trying to get to what we want to get to. Stay in this appalling season of life. Where there is actual government sanctions coming down. And actually uh, killing people for their faith. Because they would say, I believe in Yahweh over Baal. They are losing their lives. As this is growing, as this is increasing... You wouldn't imagine to find faith in the heart of Ahab's court. In the heart of where all of these sanctions are coming from. All of these new policies are coming down the pike. And you wouldn't expect that, quote, in his cabinet, you would find one who is, as he says here, fearing the Lord greatly. And yet, that's where we find Obadiah. (laughs) In the inner circle, so to speak, of Ahab's a kingdom, and he takes it upon himself to counteract all of this uh, offensiveness against the Lord's faithful. And he provides shelter for these fugitives, safety, giving them sustenance for days on end. 
How contrasting this is with Ahab. Who was seeking to squelch out and squish these lives. Here Obadiah is sacrificing himself in order to preserve them. In order to safeguard them. He's putting himself at risk in order to uh, show his fear and show his faith in Yahweh alone. And I pause after this and I ask myself the question, where is God calling us to do the same? No, maybe it doesn't look as, quote, dramatic as secretly hiding prophets in our attics. But where is God calling us to a life of sacrifice where it appears risky? Where it appears like there's something, there's, there's a much more, quote, responsible option. Sometimes, not all the time, sometimes faith involves a little bit of risk. Stepping out in faith in and letting your fear of God outweigh, outvolving your fear of anyone else or anything else sometimes means risking what that looks like. Risking what that will mean in the aftermath. And here I would say sometimes faith in times of crisis looks like Obadiah. Serving, sacrificing no matter where God has put you. Some commentators like to make Obadiah out to be a troubled character. How else could you get this high in the court of Ahab if you weren't having a compromised faith? I don't see that here in this text. I see him as a man who was perhaps, yeah, living in two worlds, but living faithfully where he was. Wherever God has put you, that's where you're called to serve him. Just because you're not, quote, in ministry doesn't mean you have one right in front of you. I learned this. This isn't in here. I'm just thinking about it now. I learned this the hard way. I was in Florida and I was seeking out a place to minister. I knew God had called me to preach. And yet, ever since I had been married, it had been increasingly delayed. God had delayed that plan. I took a, a position at a church, and I quickly, very quickly knew that this was not where I was supposed to be called to. It just wasn't the right fit. I took it because I wanted the title. I wanted the position. I was a youth pastor now. Look at God's going to use me. I'm in a very prominent church. This is, this is it. It didn't work out. And I had to resign that position. I had to go back to my job. <laughs> go back to the job that I had been working where I thought, God, why do you have me here? Why am I in this office around people that are cursing you? They don't want anything to do with you. They don't want anything to do with what I'm about. <laughs> and it just struck me. That's where my ministry was. And I had been missing it for years. I had been overlooking it for so long. And it grieved me when I realized that. That I had been ignoring the sheep that I was being called to. Because I was hoping that God would call me somewhere else. Where you are. Is where God is calling you. 
to follow him, to serve him, to, yes, perhaps sometimes sacrifice for him. A life of faith doesn't happen in a potential uh, opportunity. It happens right now in the immediate. Where are you in your stage of life? That's where God is calling you to live lives of faith. It looks different. Maybe we're in the workforce. Maybe we're in a Fortune 500 company. Maybe we're working at Wise. Maybe we're wherever we are. That's where God has you. That's where God wants you. Serve him there. That old proverbial phrase. My mom used to have it on a little like tin little plate in our home. I don't know if she still does. I'll ask her. (laughs) But it said bloom where you're planted. The old trite phrase, but actually has a lot of meaning. And I would say a lot of depth. Where you are is where God has planted you. How are you serving him? How are you here sacrificing for him? I think this is the great lesson we can get out of Obadiah. (laughs) A lesson about sacrificing right where he was. But notice I want to move on quickly to number three. A lesson about stirring. Because I love this next theme. Verses 5 down through verse 16 is where the section will take us. But here, Ahab is searching for some sort of sustenance to feed his livestock. And guess, just by happenstance, who Obadiah runs into. Notice verse 5. And Ahab said unto Obadiah, go into the land, into all the fountains of water, and into all the brooks, peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So they divided the land between them to pass throughout it, and Ahab went one way by himself, and Obadiah went another way by himself. And as Obadiah was in the way, behold, Elijah met him, and he knew him, and fell on his face, and said, Art thou that my lord Elijah? And he answered and said, I am. Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. (laughs) He just happens, quote unquote, to run into Elijah in the way, in the road. Of course, it's not by happenstance at all. It's a pivotal movement of God that Obadiah would run into his Lord, as he says here, Lord Elijah. Because here, it's not just a moment of Yahweh's prophet coming back into the land of Yahweh's people. It's Yahweh's voice returning. The way in which this word of the Lord is being communicated is now coming back. And Elijah wastes no time. He gets right down to business. I have a plan. I'm going to call out Ahab. This is what I'm called to do. <laughs> but I love love in an interesting way. I like how Obadiah reveals his humanity. If you've ever, I've said several times that the best way to understand the Bible is realize that these are real people with real emotions, all that kind of stuff. Here, Obadiah expresses that in almost painstaking detail. Notice what he says, verse number 9. Because he's questioning this plan. And he said, what have I sinned? That thou wouldst deliver thy servant to the hand of Ahab to slay me? Now, that's a really interesting question. (laughs) If you, if you want to go back, you can compare it exactly to the widow woman's confession. When, when her son passes away suddenly, she uh, almost repeats the same thing that Obadiah does here. Uh, she's, he is literally questioning the plan of God and saying that your plan is going to get me executed. He is confessing the fact that is there some sin I don't know about that now you've come to judge me? 
What have I sinned that thou wast deliver thy servant of the hand of Ahab to slay me? As the Lord God live, thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent uh, to seek thee. And when they said, He is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. And now thou sayest, Go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass, as soon as I am gone from thee, that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come to tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? How I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now thou sayest, go, tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. Three times he repeats that fear. If I go and tell Ahab that I've now found you after I've sworn that no one knew where you were, I am going to lose my head. Three times he repeats it, that he's going to be slain at the hands of Ahab. And here, I think this fear is not that unfounded. As we know, Ahab's been searching high and low. As, as here Obadiah reports, he's been searching everywhere to find Elijah. No doubt to try and say, just make this stop. And everywhere he goes, he makes everyone sort of swear on like an oath of blood that they don't know where Elijah is. And he says, if I come out now, it looks like I'm lying. And I love, I love his reasoning. Because the Lord is, the Spirit of the Lord is going to make you disappear. I know he is. I know God is going to protect you in some way in terms of preserving his word and his mission. And so I know that if I go and tell uh, Ahab that I found you and I come back to this place, you're going to be gone. You're going to poof into thin air. I don't want to do that. I don't want to lose my head. Doesn't it sound very human of Obadiah? To me, it sounds very human. It sounds very much like something that I would say. You want me to do what now? (laughs) But I love how Elijah hears all these concerns, rational and logical in in their own right, and he answers them, I would say, with the only word that can settle them all. Notice verse 15. After Obadiah has poured out his heart, confessing his fear, confessing his uncertainty about this new plan that Elijah has, and Elijah said, verse 15, as the Lord of hosts liveth. Before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. (laughs) The Lord of hosts that is alive. That's the one in whom I'm standing before and the one in whom I am going out on behalf of is this living Yahweh who I am representing. There was a God Whose sovereignty was more fearsome than Ahab's. That's what Elijah, I would say, is confessing. There's someone who is stronger and better and more powerful, more sovereign than any human monarch you've ever met. And his name is the Lord of hosts. And he is alive and I stand to give an account to him. Not your lifeless Baal. Not the lifeless gods of this nation that have so overtaken this country. I stand to answer him, the Lord of hosts. And I would say, he almost says, sort of by not saying it, so do you. I think he's answering, even though Obadiah has shown and proven his faith, he's answering Obadiah's fears. 
He's stirring this man of God to new depths of faith, we could say. Because look at what Obadiah does. Despite his fears. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. The historian says it very matter-of-factly. But here, Obadiah is doing exactly what we just talked about. He's answering the call of God to follow him into a place that he would probably not want to go. And he's stirred to that point by a brother who comes to him. And says, there's one that we answer to who's stronger than this monarch. He's more powerful than the sovereign who sits at the seat on the throne of this nation. I don't know if I have time, but I'm going to do it anyways. Hebrews chapter 10. I was thinking of these words in light of this. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 10 verses 23 through 25. Which I think is exactly, not exactly, but it's very close I would imagine to what is happening in this scene. Elijah is coming to Obadiah. He's stirring him to cling more to the profession of faith that he has in Yahweh than into his allegiances to whatever man he's trying to answer to. And what does the writer to the Hebrews say in Hebrews 10.23? He says, let us hold fast. Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. But exhorting one another and so much more as ye see the day approaching. This is what Elijah is doing with Obadiah. He's stirring him. Hold fast your profession. He's stirring him to, as he says there, love and good works. And he's reminding him. And he's stirring as one would perhaps stoke the embers of a fire. That you have a faith in a God who is with you. Faithful is he that promised, as it says in that verse. The omnipotence of Yahweh has not departed out of your midst. Can follow him even in a place that you would rather not go. The Lord of hosts is with me and he's with us. Sometimes faith in times of crisis looks exactly like this stirring up our brothers and sisters in Christ, stoking the flames of their faith, if you'll permit the metaphor, <laughs> encouraging them. To hold fast to what is promised in the word. Because he that has promised it, he who has spoken it, he is with us. Do you believe that right now in 2021? That he is with us? That the one who spoke these words by inspiration is yet even still with us? And that after 2,000 years, he has not yet given up on his faithful. Do you believe that? If there's someone that is doubting that, stir them up to hold fast to the profession of their faith. Knowing that, yes, evil might have its way. Evil men might have their way. Sin, yes, will still be rampant. But guess who's more powerful than all of that? Guess who's more sovereign than all of that? Guess who is still standing as the king of kings? Yes, despite all of this iniquity, it's 
God himself, Yahweh alone, the Lord of all hosts. As Elijah here says, the Lord of hosts liveth, and he still lives today. Which brings me to the last point I want to make this morning. A lesson about following and sacrificing and stirring. And lastly, a lesson about standing. Obadiah goes to meet Ahab, who then goes to meet Elijah, as we read there in verse 16. And he gets this audience with the prophet. Because he has some choice words for him. Look at verse 17. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? (laughs) Are you the one that's making everything stir crazy? Are you the, ever, or the one that's just making everyone in a panic and in a tizzy? Are you the one that has brought this trouble onto this nation? That's his accusation. In Ahab's mind, Elijah was the one that was at fault. He was the one that brought this all on his kingdom. He is the reason that things were the way that they were. And notice how interesting it is that as soon as the truth of Yahweh's word is rejected and abandoned, that it's seen as a troublesome thing. The the thing that was supposed to be at the center of Israel life and culture is now being viewed and castigated as a troublesome errand. It's no longer central to Israelite life and culture. And here this pointed word of Ahab which reveals his heart. Which is full of just loathsome iniquity is met by an even more pointed word by Elijah. I love how he turns all of the words that Ahab just uttered to him back on him. Elijah says, and he answered, I have not troubled Israel. Verse 18. But thou and thy father's house. And that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And thou hast followed Balaam. (laughs) I'm not the troublemaker. You are. (laughs) I'm not the one that's stirring up Israel into something other than what they should be. I'm not the one who is disrupting God's people. You're the reason for it all. Imagine the gumption it took for Elijah to say that. And his reasoning. The reason for all this trouble and disarray is precisely because Ahab had forsaken, is the word, abandoned, utterly turned away from all the things that Yahweh stood for. And now, God's word is abandoned, and now it's viewed as troublesome. And yet, in the face of this king... Elijah comes and stands in front of him. And and yes, this one who had actively sought to kill him, he stands and speaks these words of defiance. You're the reason. You're the problem. You are the man, if you will, from David's own life. This is an incredibly powerful moment, I think. This calling out of this king. This confronting of this monarch in this very public fashion. And I wonder, I wonder when we'll be called to do the same thing. Maybe it's already here, I don't know. But where are you and I being called to stand in the way of evil and say, no, not here, not anymore. I'm drawing the quote proverbial line in the sand that this word is stronger and I'm standing here. 
to confront those who disparage the truth of God? Where are we being called to that? To call out these very troublesome trajectories that evil says is okay and good and right. And they're just, we don't have to question them. We don't have to worry about them. We don't have to see them as, as completely world-altering as they are. Where are we going to call that out? Is God calling us to that? Where are we going to stand for God's word above everything else? Maybe in the short years that I've been here, too, actually. We just passed two years. Hopefully, the one thing that you know about me is that I love the scriptures. And I want us to be a people, not that we weren't, but a people that is centered around the scriptures. That we stand for this. And that when this is questioned, everything else falls in disarray. Our line in the sand is this Bible you have in front of you. That's our line in the sand. And we draw it. And we say, this is where I'm standing. As the maybe or maybe not quote from Martin Luther when he stood at the Diet of Worms. Here I stand, I can do no other. We are captured by the truth of this word. By the truth of this omnipotent word of God. Because it's the only word that matters. Sometimes I think in times of crisis, God calls us to that. Not all of us. We're not all called to be Elijah's. Maybe we're called to be like Obadiah. To exercise our faith in rather unassuming ways. Nevertheless, faith in times of crisis looks like following God. Following his leading even when it's unexpected and unwanted. And perhaps even sometimes it looks like sacrificing your own dreams and aspirations and plans in order to glorify God and benefit your brothers and sisters. Sometimes it looks like encouraging them to new depths of faithful living. By reminding them of the faith that they have in the one who has spoken these words. Still, sometimes it looks like staring in the face of evil itself and declaring God's word is stronger. (laughs) This word is better. It's more sovereign. And I'm going to stand on it, not your paltry little uh, sort of diatribes. I'm going to stand on this word. May that be what God does in each and every one of the hearts that are here this morning. May your conviction be... Here I stand, and I can do nothing else but stand on this word. That's how we demonstrate faith in times of crisis. That's how we demonstrate a life of faithfully living for God. Sometimes it looks very dramatic, as we'll get to with Elijah. But sometimes it just looks like ordinary faith in the now. Where you are is where God has called you to be faithful. May you stand on his word right where you are. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.